Well, dear congregation, I would ask you to please turn your very prayerful attention there to the book of 2 Kings and the 11th chapter in our week-by-week ministry through the Word of God here in the Old Testament. We arrive now in 2 Kings chapter 11 and the verse 1. And friends, by way of introduction, let me say just a few things. The Word of God is reminding us that every word is true, that man is wicked, that man is a sinner. We read in this chapter of awful things. We never think the human heart could ever do. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the Bible tells us in Numbers 32, 23, ye have sinned against the Lord. And be sure your sin will find you out. That's true of every one of us. We may look at this wicked queen here, Athaliah, and be aghast. But friends, I would ask us all to examine our own hearts here this morning in the light of God's word, in the searching light of God's word. God's word is true. And the records and the annals of time and history, above all, are proving that God is true and that every man by nature is a liar. You have lied. I have lied. We have all sinned against God. We have all broken his commandments, time without number. And we are sinners before an angry God. And unless we have the Savior, unless we have the one who is the King of Kings as our Lord and Savior, we are headed, like Athaliah, to a lost eternity without any hope. For there is no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. And this passage here not only speaks of a wicked queen, and she reigned six years, but it also points to a great king that shall reign forever. We see a little boy here is made king. And God is preserving a godly line here in Judah to bring the king into this world. When Pilate said to Jesus Christ, Art thou a king? He said, Thou hast said it. He is a king. And he is coming again, my friend. He died once to never die again. He died for his people, that he might give them eternal life. But he died that he might live to judge all who do not repent and bow at his name. It is a solemn word this morning here from this passage. And I must remind those who are impenitent of the words of Scripture, be sure your sin will find you out. Just like Athaliah, her sin found her out. And there was swift judgment. But there is further judgment for Athaliah. The slaying of Athaliah is not the end. Athaliah will stand before the king of kings, and so will every one of us. It is appointed unto man once to die, but after that, the judgment. So shall every man appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And I'm telling you, from every page of Scripture, God is speaking to us, and he is telling us that he is holy. Holy Father, Holy Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God searches all hearts, my friends. There's nothing that is hidden from God. This woman thought she could do a wicked thing and get away with it. But nothing is hidden from God. And God's Word, once again, is warning us, warning us, friends, that we're all wicked by nature. We are creatures of time, but we're also creatures of eternity. Let us not think that our sins will not find us out. Let us not think that we will not face an angry God. Let us remember that the mortality rate is 100%. You know, people speak about mortality rate. What was the mortality rate in the Second World War? I'll tell you what it was, 100%. Everybody died. Because nobody in the Second World War, unless they're very old, is still alive. Everybody's going to die. Everybody's going to face the judgment. Everybody that lives in this world will die. If you don't die in a war, you may die with some disease. 
You're going to die one day. And after that, you will face the judgment. Well, as we turn our mind's eye to this passage in 2 Kings 11, we see this woman, Athaliah, verse 1. And when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal. She killed all of her offspring, her grandchildren, her children. Who was she? Ahab's daughter, the daughter of wicked King Ahab and Jezebel. Like mother, like daughter, and like father. What's behind all of this? Well, we could say many things are behind all of this. We read here, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal. Well, here we're thinking about the nation Judah in the south. Of course, at this time, Israel is divided in two. You've got the ten tribes in the north, and then you've got Judah and Benjamin in the south, who are called Judah. And the king that has been reigning in the south is Ahaziah. And Ahaziah was married to Athaliah, daughter of King Ahab, who was king in the north. So these uh, two kings, as it were, were related. And Israel and Judah are in terrible times at this particular point in history. For there has been Baal worship. We saw in the last chapter how the worshippers of Baal were slayed in the days of Jehu. Jehu slew those Baal worshippers, not for the right reason. He was told he was going to slay them, but he slew them for his own political gain because he wanted to get rid of all of the house of Ahab. The house of Ahab predominantly worshipped Baal and that he knew if he could just destroy, he called for all the Baal worshippers, he would destroy the house or the true ones who allied themselves with the house of Ahab. Now they have been slain. And now she, the daughter of Ahab, who was married to Ahaziah, to, to Joab, and then her son here, Ahaziah, dies. She was married to Joab. And then Ahaziah is slain also by Jehu. What happens? She arises and destroys all the seed royal. What is going on? Well, here, let me say, if you know your Bibles well, God warns us in the book of Genesis, if you just turn there with me, Genesis 3, 15, we're told, God tells us that at the fall, when Adam and Eve fell, that there would be a conflict in this world. But God would eventually bring the seed of the woman, which is Jesus Christ, into the world. But there would be a conflict. There is the godly line. There is the line of Seth. There is the line of Abel and Seth and so on. A godly line from which the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come. But there's also an ungodly line. Those who hate the people of God. And let me say this, God has his people. He has chosen them even from before the foundation of the world. And they would be given precious faith to believe in the seed that is to come. And here in Genesis 3.15 we read, God speaking to the serpent, Satan, and I will put enmity, literally I will inject enmity between thee, that is Satan, and the woman. I'm not here just speaking about Eve. But you see, from Eve, eventually will come the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world, the seed of the woman. Notice, and between thy seed, that's the seed of Satan, that's all the unbelieving. Remember when the Lord Jesus spoke to the unbelieving Jews in his day. He said, you're of your father, the devil. He was making a very clear delineation, wasn't he? That those who are not the Lord's are not somehow innocuous ifs. There's no gray area, as it were. The Lord Jesus said, he that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not scattereth. We could draw a line down the congregation here today. We could say those 
that are Christ's are with him. And those that are not, he says, are against me. You are not in a position, my friend, of neutrality. There's no such thing as neutral ground, and I know that might sound offensive, but listen to the words of the Lord Jesus. He that is not with me is against me. You say, well, how do you say that? Well, the Bible says, Paul actually tells us, that there is no such thing as a true atheist. No such thing as a true atheist. Paul says this in Romans chapter 1. For the things of God have been revealed to all men. You say, well, how? Paul answers, he says, by the things that God has made. He's revealed that he is, that there is a God. And man knows, and man rejects the God of the Bible. Man has many gods that he has invented, a God of his own imagination. That's why there are a plethora of religions in this world. Because man makes a God that he likes, a God that will serve him, a God that will honor him. And that is exactly what Baal did. Baal wasn't a real God. He was an image. And we see the images destroyed here. We saw in Israel how even the place of Baal worship in the last chapter was turned into a toilet, into a latrine. And the images of Baal broken down. Baal couldn't support himself. Can an idol speak? It can't speak. But my friends, the living God would eventually send his son, the seed of the woman, into this world. And God says here in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between thee, speaking to Satan and the woman, and between thy seed, which are the unbelieving, and her seed, which are the believing. It shall bruise thy heel, thy head. That's the seed of the woman that is speaking to Christ. He, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise the it is a his there, notice. And thou shalt bruise his heel. Satan bruised Christ's heel, as it were. When he went to the cross, he suffered. But notice, Christ has the ultimate victory. He shall bruise the head of the serpent. Now behind wicked queen Athaliah, she wants to get rid of all true worship to the Lord. You see, because through Judah would come the Savior. True worship was through Judah. And the one who is to come from the line of the tribe of Judah is the Lord Jesus. You, if you know your Bible, that's so clear. The Lord Jesus Christ is styled as the line of the tribe of Judah. But here, this woman, she is fueled by anger, perhaps. You think what's happened in the previous chapter? All the Baal worshippers are destroyed. And now she seeks to destroy that godly line of David in the south, Judah, from whence the Savior will come. That is what we are learning through these passages. Fueled not only by her own lust and greed, but behind her is a wicked one, Satan. This woman, she is seeking by Satan, perhaps not even knowing as we know we're told that Satan even entered Judas to do the unspeakable, to put our Lord Jesus Christ to death. But yet we're told Judas by transgression fell. Judas handed over our Lord Jesus Christ for money. But you've got to remember that behind Judas's motives was the motives of the evil one, Satan. Who from that moment the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world. Satan tried to destroy through Herod. Remember, as soon as he was born, how the firstborn was slain. And we have those words, the mothers crying, and how the Lord Jesus was quickly taken into Egypt for a little while, and then brought back. Why? Because Satan knew 
that the seed of the woman would come into the world and defeat his purposes. Well, we note here she, she kills all of her offspring. It's unbelievable. Can you imagine this? Grandsons, maybe even whatever son she might have. But the interesting thing is here, God has the last word, doesn't he? It's what this whole passage teaches us here. One little boy is spared. And this is not by accident. This is not by chance. Not by accident at all. She's desperate. But friends, there are several things I want us to notice. When we think of this passage here and what God's word has to say on these matters, the seed of the woman, we've got to remember, and I'll just turn you quickly to the book of the Revelation, chapter 12. I want you to see this because really this chapter won't make sense unless we see this. In the book of the Revelation, chapter 12, the church, it's very clear, in Revelation 12 is the woman. We know this from Scripture that the church is described as the bride of Christ. And we all understand that, those of us who are Christians. And Christ is the bridegroom, isn't he? He said he's coming again for his bride. And we notice in Revelation 12:1, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. Of course, you have the twelve tribes, don't you? And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And notice, and his tail, this is Satan's tail, drew the third part of the stars of heaven. We know this, that a third part of the angels fell. And he was cast down, wasn't he? We read this in Isaiah 11. And did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman. Notice, which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. That could be said of the Lord Jesus. As soon as it was born. Who was there? Herod. They had heard that a king was born. Now notice, and she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. You've got time this afternoon, read Psalm 2, verse 8 and 9. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Now notice, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. This man-child is God the Son. And where is he now? He is on his throne. He was caught up. He's taken up to God. And that's where he is now. Now you come down to verse 17 of Revelation 12. And we see the enmity between the seed of Satan throughout the New Testament age. How the church has a real adversary. Remember what Peter says, and the devil your adversary seeks to devour you, Christians. Look at verse 17 of Revelation 12. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, which is the church, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, you see, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. You see, her seed are Christians who keep the commandments of God because they love God. And Satan hates those especially that keep the commandments of God. The Christian keeps the commandments of God not out of servile fear. But Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. You see, it's love that moves the Christian's heart to serve Christ. We love him because he first loved us. And you see... When you study the Bible, what you see from Genesis right through to the book of the Revelation is this constant conflict between those who are God's people and the rest of the world. And Satan, who is behind this world, 
We read in Ephesians 2, don't we, of the prince of the power of the air who now works in the sons of disobedience. It's what we've got to have in our minds as we come to this chapter. And this woman is seeking to destroy this seed of David where would come the Savior. Jesus, thou son of David. The Lord Jesus. David's greater son. That is what is all behind this. You see, Satan is desiring and even working through the sons of disobedience to crush Christ's head, but he won't. It'll be Christ that will crush his head. This we've seen throughout the Old Testament. This is what's happening. Nothing here is happening in a vacuum. And this killing of all the sons of Ahaziah by this grandmother, their grandmother and daughter of Ahab, seems a very last desperate attempt to grab at Satan now because Baal worship has been dealt a mighty blow in the last chapter, hasn't it? And we see how great is the anger. We read there in Revelation how wroth Satan is, how angry he is against sin, uh, against his, God's people, because they will not commit sin. So notice here, first of all, understand that context. Satan is behind all of this. Now secondly, let us notice providentially the preserved seed of David. Now notice, but Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, who was the former king in Judah, who is now slain, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons, which were slain. And you can't imagine this. She's just killed her grandchildren. And they hid him, even him and his nurse, in the bedchamber from Athaliah, so that he was not slain. This is God's providential keeping. Why? Because remember what the Lord said to David. There in 2 Samuel 7, he said, When thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee. God had sworn to David that his line would continue and that eventually would come the Lord Jesus. You know, if you look at Matthew chapter 1 there, you can read of the, the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can trace it right back to David. And God is keeping his promise to put on David's throne an everlasting king. Now this family line continues because one helpless, as it were, little infant was spared. We read in this chapter that he's seven years old when he began to reign, as it were. Now the interesting thing here with this, amidst all of this slaughter, and this little baby that is powerless to do anything to save himself, what a contrast to the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've thought about this. But the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world. And sometimes he is presented as some helpless little being. But I remind you that the Lord Jesus Christ, even whilst in the womb of Mary, and this is a staggering thought, we're told all things consist by him. The very one who condescended and who was contracted to a span and was incomprehensibly made man, yet was controlling the universe while he was in the womb of Mary. That is staggering, isn't it? Because we read in Colossians 1.16, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. That's Jesus Christ who is God. All things visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And Paul says this, Colossians 1.17, he is before all things and by him all things consist. He's keeping this earth in its orbit. 
is controlling all events. The little one that was contracted to a span is Almighty God. Isaiah 9, 6. Mighty God. You see, while God is one, and yet is in three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And there was a time when God was not flesh, but we're told God was manifest in the flesh. Jesus said, I am the first and the last. Nobody else can claim that title but God. And the first and the last became man and was not like this little boy Joash, helpless, but Christ voluntarily, my friends, took to himself our nature. Not helpless. We must never present him as helpless. But in the womb he was. And he was spared that we might be not spared in the end. Spared when he came spared from Herod, but there was a time that he was not spared. We're told, Paul says, God spared not his son, but delivered him up. And the striking thing here is what you read about this Joash, despite the mercy shown to him, when you get to chapter 13, he's not a very good king. And that's a picture of us all. Despite the mercy. Something else so providentially spared here, but we have a, a godly priest providentially raised up for such a time as this. You think of those words in Esther, don't we? For such a time as this. But what a time, you see. And there were not many that feared God amongst the priests in Judah. Very few. And this man, he is prepared to do such a thing to coronate this young man as king, even at the age of seven. And he, he gathers all the priests together and all the rulers, and they make him king. And they hail him king. And can you imagine all of this done? Okay, he's kept in secret for some seven years. Six years, we should say, because it was six years that Athaliah reigned. Now, by the way, six is always the number of man, isn't it? And it's interesting. This is the only queen, as it were. Only queen over Judah. Certainly no queen over Israel that reigned. But she reigned for six years. And six, we know, is the number of man. And the number of man always fails. But God had always said that it would be a king that would reign. But she says, oh, no, I will be queen. Just like... Remember her mother Jezebel, wanting to be queen, wanting power. This is not right. A wicked woman, a wicked regime, wickedness, no love to her family. But friends, this very one, the Lord Jesus, is whom this passage really points to. And here we have a, a priest that is providentially on the scene at the time. Notice, and God gives him great wisdom. Why? To preserve this line. Notice, and the seventh year Jehoadiah sent and fetched the rulers over hundreds with the captains and the guard and brought them to him. So this godly priest here, known all about this, they obviously could confide in him. The sister of Ahaziah and the nurse confided in him. And he was hid in the house of the Lord six years. It's amazing, isn't it? There's something else that was in the house of the Lord. And a strange thing we might think, David's weapons. Now maybe we've read the Old Testament and wondered why on earth David instructed the weapons from the spoils were to be kept in the house of the Lord. For this purpose, for this day, for this reason. Because God knew what Satan and this woman would try to do for such a time as this. So we read here in verse 4, And the seventh year Jehoadiah sent and fetched the rulers of over hundreds with the captains and the guard. So he was obviously privy to all this keeping of the boy. Because of course he was in the house of the Lord and brought them. It shows she, 
She knew nothing really of what was going on in the house of the Lord. And that's true for the ungodly. They really don't know what goes on in the house of the Lord. And they brought him, them to him, into the house of the Lord and made a covenant with them. That's with all of these captains of the, the guard. Because you had the guard of the, the temple and you had other rulers here as well involved. And so they arrive unarmed. And Jehodiah here, he starts to arm all the men. And, and here again, providentially by God, that these men would be given these weapons to carry out the various things. Not only that, but to protect this young-to-be king on the Sabbath. And notice what he commands, the plan of Jehoiada, And he commanded them saying, this is the thing that ye shall do. The third part of you that enter in on the Sabbath shall even be the keepers of the watch of the king's house. And a third part shall be at the gate of Sheol, the part of the gate behind the guard. So shall ye keep the watch of the house that it be not broken down. Two parts of all of you that go out forth on the Sabbath, even they shall keep the watch of the Lord about the king. And ye shall compass the king round about every man with his weapons in his hand. So here about to take place now is this time of coronation, this coronation service. And the king is going to be anointed, of course, by this priest. And that was always done. And we notice, you come down to verse 10. We see, and to the captains over hundreds did, he, did the priests give King David's spears and shields that were in the temple of the Lord. And the guards stood and every man with his weapons in his hand round about the king from the right corner of the temple to the left corner of the temple along the altar. And along by the altar and the temple. And he brought forth the king's son. That's Ahaziah's son who's dead now. But put the crown and put the crown upon him and gave him the testimony that is the law of God. And they made him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, God save the king. And this is amazing, isn't it? He's been hidden for these six years while this wicked queen has been ruling. God has providentially kept this little boy. Now, we notice, thirdly, this bizarre protest of this wicked Queen, notice verse 13, as soon as she hears all this rejoicing, and when Athaliah heard the noise of the guard and of the people, she came to the people into the temple of the Lord, and when she looked, behold, the king stood by a pillar, as the manner it was, and the princes and the trumpeters by the king, and all the people of the land rejoiced and blew with trumpets, and Athaliah rent her clothes and cried treason. Treason. Can you believe it? Is she not the treasonous one? Is she not committed treason against God? Indeed. It was to be a king that reigned, but she killed all the prospects of the men who might have been king. That's treason. But you see, God's plan and purpose is never thwarted, my friend. The Lord hid her in the house of the Lord six years. And this reminds us that while things in this world might get terrible, God reigns. And God has his king, doesn't he? And God will have the final shout of victory. We will in Jesus Christ. Now you notice what happens after her ridiculous claim, shouting treason. And by the way, her name means the Lord is exalted. It's strange, isn't it? Athaliah, the Lord is exalted? Well, she is sought to exalt herself. And any man that tries to exalt himself, God will humble, my friend. Now notice verse 15, but Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains of the hundreds, the officers of the host, and said unto them, have her forth without the rangers, and him that followeth her kill with a sword. Now this was right. The scriptures say very clearly 
in Genesis chapter 9, that if another man slays another man, it shall be life for life. That is only right. The Bible is teaching us the sanctity of life and that God is holy and God is just. And so they laid hands on her and she was slain. Verse 16. What is God doing, my friends? Remember what God said that he would keep light in the house of the Lord. And the house of the Lord is David's house too, isn't it? It's the house of God's people. He said that he would preserve a light for the sake of David. We know from that previous chapter how despite a previous wicked king, God did not get rid of this line. He could have. Think of things, how bad they are even in Judah. Things were terrible under Ahaziah. He wasn't a good king. Married to a wicked woman. And even his grandmother. But God would bring an end. See, something else that's happening. Even in this chapter as we look at it, God is chastening Judah. This is remarkable. I don't know if we've, we've thought about this, but God is chastening this line. Because there is going to come a judgment here, and there is a judgment upon Athaliah. And God is saying, woe to any man that defies my purposes and my counsel. Who shall resist his will, says Paul? No man can. So she was taken away and slain. Jehoiada, the priest, made a covenant. Notice, third thing I want you to notice is this covenanting with the Lord. God of heaven. Notice, and Joadiah the priest made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people between the king also and the people. Here is a sort of a, a renewing. Remember, Judah now had backslidden for so long and there was even Baal worship. It started, didn't it, with Jehoshaphat, who made an alliance with Ahab's house. And he married into that ungodly line in Israel in the north, where there was Baal worship, and there were compromises. But now there has to be a turning of Judah. And you notice, Jehoiada, this godly priest, he makes a covenant between the Lord and the king. The king swears on oath that he is going to honor God, the true, the living God, who is not to be worshipped by Baal or to be represented by the golden calves. The king would swear to this. And the people. The king makes a covenant between him and the Lord and the people. The king serves the people. Now, of course, as I've said, this king will prove to be an ungodly king. And there is only one king that really is true to his people. And that, my friend, is the Lord Jesus, who actually gives his life for his subject members. What king would do that? But the Lord Jesus. Now, that they would be the Lord's people, between the king also and the people. Now, that was only right. So this really was a change, meant to be a change, meant to be a revival. Now, you read the word here, covenant. As a church, once a year, this church, our members, on the Lord's Day, first Lord's Day of the year, every year, we sit down and we go over our covenant. It's our covenant to God, what we have expressed in the Ten Commandments, how we will love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, and to love one another. Even as Christ loved us, we make that covenant. And that's, we renew that every year. We remind ourselves of our covenant responsibilities. And that's only right, and that's only true. They were to submit to the king, but the king wasn't really going to submit to the Lord. We know that. But I want you to notice something else. Here's another point. Godly reforms really only begin by breaking down that which is false. 
verse 18. And all the people of the land went into the house of Baal and brake it down. Why? Because it's false. You see, the Bible does not speak about religious tolerance, ecumenism. It's not in the Bible. They went into the house of Baal, break it down. The previous chapter, in Israel, the house of Baal was made a latrine, a toilet. His altars and his images break they in pieces thoroughly and slew Matan, the priest of Baal. Why? Because this false religion was leading men to hell. Let me say, first of all, there can be no turning to God, my friend, by way of application, until we turn from our idols. Baal was an idol. You give to Baal, he gives you something back. That's all he was, a fictitious God. And, and people have their idols. They may not be Baal. And uh, even so-called Christians have their idols. But God is not their supreme delight. This here is a breaking down. And I want to say this, ecumenism, utter words like this, renewal, or renewing, or revitalizing. What do they mean? Renewal is nothing, my friend, unless you turn away from false ways. It's nothing. It's empty words. They mean is, oh, well, just, we'll have a little lift here, a little lift there. That is not Christianity. Christianity is not coming to, to church to have a little lift, but it's to turn from this world. What, what, what did Paul say to the Thessalonians? How he knew that God's word had met with them in power. He said, you turn from God to God, from your idols to serve the true and living God. First Thessalonians 1.9. He said, we know that the gospel truly came in power, not in word only, but in power and demonstration, because you turn from your idols. My friend, if, if there's anything that is between you and God, it's an idol. I don't care what it is. It can be your looks. It can be another person. It can be a hobby that you have. It's an idol. We sing sometimes, Lord, that dearest idol that I've known, tear it from my heart. My friends, we don't have the power to, to tear it. We pray, God, tear it. But then Paul says, you, by the Spirit, put it to death. We have to. And they had to make the change here. And it began at the Lord's house. And my friends, judgment always begins at the Lord's house, doesn't it? And when things aren't right in the church, don't expect things to be right at home. Don't expect your Christian walk to be right. If you don't receive God's word as it is, don't expect your life to be right. Expect trouble. If you have anything that you're putting before God, there will be trouble. God will have no rival. You see, God is not calling his people into a life of drudgery. God calls us to himself to enjoy him. That's the Christian life. We're told his commandments are not grievous. Unless you're born again, they will be grievous. We keep his commandments not to earn righteousness. But my friend, because righteousness has been earned for us. Heaven has been gained for us by Jesus Christ. And he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's the proof you love me. He says, don't, why call me Lord, Lord, and do not do as I say? He, he can't be your master. And so they tore down these places of false worship. And, and we need to tear down all aspects of what is not truly Christian. 
And I should never introduce anything into this church or to your life that God's word does not prescribe. Heaven forbid. But I must and I am commissioned and commanded to preach the whole counsel of God and to call every one of us to do what God has said, my friend. And let me say, we don't speak about just a renewing of the Spirit. You walk in and all of a sudden everything is, is wonderful. Oh, we feel the atmosphere. We feel, oh, everything's wonderful. You can't know the presence of God if God is not honored. If he's not honored in your life, my friend. If there's something you're putting in front of God, you will never know the renewing of the Spirit. Unless there is a breaking down of self and idols. There's something else. When we look at this chapter here, and when we study Matthew 1, and we see what this wicked queen was up to, killing all of these seed royal. I can't imagine how many were killed. We know that in the previous chapter, 70 of Ahab's sons were killed. I don't know how many here were killed of Ahaziah's. But she killed an awful lot, making sure. And you be sure of this, the devil will be on the attack of God's people. And we have to be very careful. Peter says, be sure your adversary, the devil, seeks to devour. And let me say this, my friend, you be killing sin or it'll be killing you. If you let sin lurk in the heart, if you entertain things that God says, I don't approve of this, you will destroy your own walk. Will you not? Something else, what seemed here like a close shave was all in the hands of God. You think of this young boy Seven years old. This royal line could have been destroyed. No. Never. But you see, what God is showing here, what might seem like a close shave, is brought to bear upon our minds. God is saying, you see, I'm in control. You think of your life. As a Christian, sometimes you think, how am I going to make it? It seems that the world is against me. It seems that people are against me. The Lord says, they that honor me, I will honor. Look at your life sometimes. And it seems what the Lord is asking you to do is too much, but it's not too much. It's for your good and to try your faith. I tell you this, the times when the Christian has to do something It'll mean life or death. Job says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He says, after he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Sometimes God brings us right to the very edge. But you know what he says in his word? At evening time, it shall be light. And that's what we see in this passage at evening time, in the darkest of hour. And there you have it on the cross. Just when you think heaven is lost and we see our Savior bleeding and dying. At evening time, it should be like we read in the Scriptures, God turned the heavens to blackness and darkness. It was as if God hid his face. But then there is that cry. It is finished. And we read that it was light again. Not only was it light, but we're told that men actually came out of the graves when he cried, it is finished. But more than that, 
We're told that the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, signifying God had made the way open into the Holy of Holies. The priest could not enter therein without the blood of a lamb once a year. But we are told he has entered in not to the earthly tabernacle. But Jesus Christ, we're told, is passed into the heavens and is now sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. You see, even at the darkest hour, when we think all is lost, God's glory shines the brightest, doesn't it? And we read, when things were so desperate in Israel, and there was no hope, and there was darkness, and all the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees was just so contrary to God's word, how that little one came into this world, and he began to teach in the temple, and how men saw him, and as, as he, he grew in favor with men, and then eventually that one, he was hidden for a little while. And things were so dark. And we read in the scriptures, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. It's reminding us, isn't it? God had a plan all along. This little boy to preserve and to send his son, Jesus Christ, into this world. And my friend, that's the Christian's hope, isn't it? Jesus Christ. When men cried, crucify him. And we see the disciples and Mary and others weeping. He said, weep not for me. While there is weeping for a night, joy shall come in the morning. Thank the Lord for his King, Jesus Christ. He will overcome. God's plan, God's purpose will not fail. That's what we're being reminded of here. Stark though, isn't it? And you would have thought that this little king, as you will see, would be a very thankful young man, but he's not. He's not. Spared. But that's us so often, isn't it? We've been spared from hell. But have we really given God our thanks? Have we really given him our lives and served him as we ought? Oh, we're great sinners. But what a wonderful Savior who even restored Peter. Peter said, Lord, I'll never deny thee. All may, not I. But he had to be humble, didn't he? And the Lord restores his people. How gracious our God is and our King, Jesus Christ. We are blessed in him. May we praise and live for the honor and glory of his precious name. Amen.